Open your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 7. We are continuing on our series entitled Ignited. And what we are discovering is that even as the letter to the Ephesians challenged us that Jesus needs to be our first love. I heard a couple of you guys saying, I'm courting this young lady. I remember when I was courting Meredith. And we just had to regularly challenge each other that as much as we are falling in love with one another and, and asking God, are you calling us one day to be married? We had to recognize Jesus is our first love. Amen? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So we looked last week at Ephesians chapter 2 and we saw that these Ephesians, as, 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 as passionate as they were in serving in the kingdom of God, the, the, Jesus says, but I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. And I'm sure as you look through, they tested those who claimed to be apostles, but were not. They had, they had their theology down pat. And it even says that they were living and, and enduring hardships for the name of Jesus. And yet, somewhere along the way, they had that fire that, it, that when they had first come to Christ had been put out or had been dying down. And Jesus said, stir that up. As Paul was saying to Timothy, he said, he, he, sends fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. And so we realize that as we're going through this series ignited, this love for Jesus is like that first button. And you get that first button right, come on, you get that first button wrong, excuse me, and the rest of it is wrong and the whole shirt is cockeyed. Uh, I almost went to a, a pastor's prayer meeting one morning dressed like that. And I just looked at myself, and because I got dressed in the dark, and I said, man, I, I, I can't go out like this. And You know what? That love for Jesus, that is first and foremost. I want to talk about uh, this story here in Luke chapter 7. Before I do, I want to share just a, a little bit with you. There was a, a, a mom making pancakes for her two boys, Kevin and Ryan, Kevin five, Ryan three, and she says, you know what? You need to stop arguing about who's going to get the first pancake off the griddle. You know, I think Jesus would say to his brother, he would say, brother, you have the first pancake. So Kevin turns to his younger brother and says, okay, Ryan, you be Jesus. You know, when you're young, it's, it's easy to fail to truly understand this idea of, of love and all the implications of that. Many, however, I believe it, even when we were older, we still fail to get it and, and grasp it. Granddaughter was looking at her grandmother's wedding rings, you know, big, thick, bulky things, and wow, she says, Grandma... What heavy and, and cumbersome rings those were some 50 years ago. And her grandma looks at her and says, sweetie, yes, but remember, these were to last a lifetime. Can you say ouch? You know, what happens, can I ask, when we fall out of love with Jesus? What happens when the devil brings along discouragements and we feel like throwing in the towel? What happens when that love begins to die down? How can we be burnout proof, if you will? It's a problem, I believe, because we have never truly understood what this love of Jesus is all about. 
As we go through this story, I, I believe we're going to find out what is this truth that Luke is trying to share with us, that I believe that if we get this, just this one truth, God will so envision us for his kingdom and impassion us for him, we will have this, what I call this extravagant love. So I've entitled the sermon today, Extravagant Love. How many of you want this type of extravagant love that as hard as the devil tries to put out, he cannot? Luke chapter 7, start with me, verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So we went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life, I want you to underline that phrase, had lived a sinful life. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him, referring to Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, so he's thinking this, understand, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. I want you to just underline that phrase. She is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Now, you know when Jesus is about to say something like this, uh, calls him by their first name, Simon. Many times it's Simon Peter that he talks this way to. But this is just Simon a Pharisee. I, wanna, I have something I want to talk to you about. You know that he is about to put his finger on a very important issue in your life, and he does that here. Simon, I have something to tell you. Simon just drawn right, tell me, teacher. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, so he turns towards the woman, but he's continuing his conversation with Simon. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Yeah, the guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
Can I ask you, what motivates those who, for example, in this book, Tortured for Christ by Richard Wormbrandt, and uh, I had this on my desk as one of those books I'm in the process of, of reading through, what motivates them to be willing to be persecuted for the kingdom of God? They have an opportunity to say, no, I recant Jesus, or no, I will not follow him. But they refuse to do this, and they remain steadfast, and they are persecuted, and some of them to death. We call that martyrdom. What motivates them? Maybe some of us would step back and say, whoa, you know, I I think that's a little too radical. How about those who, uh, what compels those who worship extravagantly? You look in your, your bulletin here, it talks from, uses Old Testament, New Testament verses with regard to how the people of God worshiped him both in Old and New Testament. And many, at least in our culture, would look at them and say, you know what, that's just a lot of emotionalism. Can I ask you, do you love Jesus with your emotions? Hang on, think through that. We love him with our emotions. We love him with our will and everything in us. But it, it's so easy we look at people, you know, they're just a little bit too radical. That's kind of over the top there. And yet, we see it throughout scripture, worshiping him with a passion. What fuels those who talk about Jesus like all the time? You know what I'm talking about? And they talk about Jesus in every conversation. There's just something inside of them and they, they want to talk about Jesus. What fuels that passion? You know what? They're just Jesus freaks, right? Yeah, that, That's a little bit too much. But many in the body of Christ, I think we fail to experience this depth of Jesus' love and fail to, to be filled with, with this deep love. And, and my question then is, we look through this story, what does it mean to be extravagantly in love with Jesus? And how can we? Because here, here's the truth. If we're not careful, we'll look at a story like this, and here's going to be our conclusion. I guess I had to be a really, really bad sinner to really, really love Jesus. Now, in all honesty, now I'm not going to look for raised hands here, but how many of you would say that seems to be the conclusion? And uh, maybe some of us are thinking, well, i got to go out this afternoon and sin a little bit more. I'm not saying that. That is not the conclusion that Luke or Jesus is wanting us to come to by any means. Here is a woman, and she is from the same town that Simon is. She obviously has a reputation of being a sinful woman. Now, it doesn't say what type of sin she's been involved in, but I, we could guess, I suppose. And, and many suppose that she was a harlot. I'm not going to say she wasn't. But here she is, and something has happened in her life that compels her when she finds out that Jesus is in this man's house, Simon the Pharisee. She grabs her alabaster jar of perfume, which generally speaking is expensive. 
and she goes to this house of Simon the Pharisee as a woman who had a reputation. I mean, Simon even recognized her and knew her. Maybe because she had been standing on the street corner. I don't know. And she comes boldly into his house. And the guests, including Simon, are gathered around the table reclining. Now, reclining means that they're generally either on a small couch or pillows. And they have one elbow down. They're leaning towards the table with their feet out this way. That's reclining at a table. So their feet are not tucked under the table. She's not climbing under everybody, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, excuse me, and, you know, <laughs> crying on her, his feet. His feet are out this way. And they had bare feet. They generally didn't wear shoes. And if they wore their sandals, and they would take them off. And, and so here he is, Jesus, along with all the guests, their feet extended, leaning towards the table. And this woman comes in. So she is kind of behind him, but certainly not unnoticed. And she begins to weep. Now, how many of you would be so bold as to just entered, enter unannounced into an, another person's house, unwelcome? There's no invite. You don't show the man at the door your invitation and he lets you in, and yet you go in boldly. And then when you get there, what do you do? You cry, and you make a scene. And she begins to weep. And, and, and you can only imagine that this weeping is uncontrollable. There's something that's been stirring in her heart. And she is weeping in the tears. They are so heavy. They wet his feet so profusely she's able to wash the dirt off. And then she uses her hair to do this. And then she pours perfume on his feet. There is another story similar to this that I want to share with you. I'm going to be brief and contrast them because I think it's going to help us understand what's going on here. But the first thing that I want us to see is Simon's view of Jesus. Because what does he do? He looks at Jesus and he says, hmm. I mean, I'm sure that's somewhere in the Greek. Hmm. And he says, if this guy's really a prophet, he would know who's touching him right now. And he would say, please don't do that. I'm a godly man and you're a sinful woman. Obviously, he is not a prophet. The story that I'm referring to in order for us to get at this point of Simon's view of Jesus is the one that's recorded in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 12. There are some names that are given, and the incident is right before the feast of the Passover, within a week of Jesus' death and resurrection, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, comes into Simon the leper's home, and she does something very similar to this. This is a feast that's done in honor for Jesus, he had just resurrected Lazarus in the chapter before, and if you kind of put a timetable together, together, it was probably only a few months before that incident. Lazarus' resurrection in John 11, this incident in the very beginning of John 12. And Mary 
breaks this perfume, and some of the Gospels say it was over his feet, some would say it was over his head, and here's what you conclude. It was over his head and it was over his feet because Scripture is inerrant. They didn't make a mistake. They have just different perspectives that they're focusing on. And so Mary pours this expensive perfume worth a year's wages, extravagant act of devotion and honor to Jesus that she gives. When Simon is throwing his party, now not Simon the leper, we're talking Simon in Luke 7. And by the way, these two stories are not the same. Some theologians, they just love to try and find some error and they twist scripture to prove their point and whatever. This is a different story. The name Simon is the same, but these two Simons are vastly different. The Simon in John 12, for example, Simon the leper, that's what he's known by. Now, do you really think that Simon the leper, if he was still a leper, would have this huge party and that like anyone would even show up. I mean, if he was still leprous, they would say, thanks for the invite, but no, thank you. Jesus had obviously healed Simon the leper. He obviously had come into the kingdom. That's usually why names are given in the Bible, either because they're well-known or because they became members of, of the church in the, in the early portion of the, the ministry there. And Simon the leper does so to honor Jesus. Simon, in Luke 7, why does he throw this banquet? We don't know, but it certainly was not to honor Jesus. He is a Pharisee, and he smacks of Pharisaism, uh, Pharisaicalness, or whatever the word is. I'm searching for one. But he's a Pharisee through and through very legalistic, and has certain misunderstandings. The people do not come to honor Jesus because Lazarus is resurrected or Simon the leper has been healed or for any other reason, but you can only imagine that this one woman does come to do just that. Perhaps she was healed. Perhaps in Jesus healing her, and seeing the amazing love that even as a sinner, a wicked sinner, that God would still shed his love in her life and heal her. We, we don't know exactly what's going on here, but she has come to this place of repentance and even faith at the very end there. Your faith has saved you. She has faith before she arrives. Her sins have been forgiven before she comes. And because of this forgiveness, she hears about Jesus and she wants to honor him and express this extravagant act of devotion and love to him. And church, I want to say, this is where we need to be at. Because if we're going to have a passion and an overwhelming love for Jesus, because I did say in the beginning, everything that we do as, as a follower of Jesus Christ springs from that relationship with him, springs from this radical devotion and love that we have for our Savior, everything. I have a book that's called The Making of Real Men. The first chapter is Passion for God. That's, that, that's the first button. That it's, everything starts there. You want to see victory over sin? You have to have a passion for God. 
You want to exercise self-control? Okay, realize that it really should be spirit control, but it is controlling the self, and the spirit has to do it, and the way he does it is because you are in love with Jesus. That is everything flows from that. Simon here in Luke 7 is not welcoming. The woman welcomes Jesus. Why? Because she is there for one reason, to honor Jesus. Not Simon. Simon doesn't believe that Jesus is a prophet. Simon does not believe that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Now, in the NIV, it says over here in verse 49, the other guests began to say among themselves. It, the literal Greek and the, and the NASB has a more literal translation here. It says, excuse me, let me just, okay, those reclining with him. And that would include Simon. See, the NIV, when it says the other guests, well, Simon's not a guest, he's a host. And as we're reading through it from the NIV, we might conclude that Simon's not included in there. And in all honesty, that was my initial understanding until as I began to study it a little bit more, I realized, no, Simon still hasn't changed. Simon still hasn't changed. He is part of those reclining with Jesus and he is wondering, who is this that even forgives sins? Only God can forgive sins. Who are you, Jesus? Let me tell you who Jesus is. Luke sets us up before this story to tell us who Jesus is. Look there, right before the story, in verse 30, 34. The son of man, here's the rumor, the son of man came eating and drinking, and, and you say, here's the rumor. I'm sure that's in the Greek too somewhere. He is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, Simon didn't understand that. That is why Jesus, excuse me, Luke is including this story right here because you see, Jesus is a friend of sinners. Who is it that needs salvation? Is it the righteous or is it the sinner? The context says that Jesus came to be a friend of sinners. And even as he says to rescue them to forgive he came to seek and to save the lost jesus came to love and win this sinful woman but i believe he also came to rescue simon and here's the truth church many of us though we would certainly not want to identify with simon there's a little bit of simon in us that god is saying i'm sorry but i need to remove that little bit of simon the pharisee from your heart so you become a little bit more like simon the leper so do you become a little bit more like this this sinful woman who had by the way been rescued and forgiven Can I ask you this, and, and you can just think about this, I'm going to share my opinion, but why do you think Luke chooses to mention Simon's name? Now, maybe you didn't, never even thought about that. There's a lot of stories in the Gospels and names are the centurion in which his servant is healed. Why isn't his name mentioned? We have Bartimaeus, the blind man, his name is mentioned. Tradition says that Bartimaeus became a follower of Jesus. Nicodemus, his name is mentioned. John 3, 
you know, Jesus, you're obviously a teacher come from God. And Jesus interrupts, excuse me, uh, Nicodemus, for you to enter in the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm sorry, say what? You, you, for you to see the kingdom of God, you must, you must be born of the spirit and of water. What, what, what? Nicodemus was thinking as a Pharisee would, uh, salvation, forgiveness, all, uh, it's something that you do. It's something that you accomplish. You win God's love and his forgiveness. And Simon the Pharisee is just like this. But why is Nicodemus' name mentioned? Read the end of the book of John. He's one of those, just like Joseph of Arimathea, in which they choose to follow Jesus. So why is Simon's name mentioned here? And I'm going to suppose because Jesus had the audacity to reach out to him, even a Pharisee. And I'm personally of the opinion that at some point Simon gave his heart to Christ. Now, you can check this out, names that are mentioned in the New Testament and why. Either because they're well-known like Caiaphas or Pilate or because they later came to Christ. Here's something of interest. The name Simon means listen or hear, or heard. And perhaps Luke is wanting to include his name here because you know what? So many of us are like this guy and you need to listen to what I'm going to say to you because here is the truth of all truths. And if you miss this, you will live a passionless life for Christ, if that's even possible. I need to move on. Let's realize that sin separates us from God. And Jesus, being the friend of sinners, he wants to win your heart. And he does that, we're going to see a little bit later. Number one is as we begin to view sin correctly. So that's the second thing I want us to see. Simon's view of sin. We see Simon's view of Jesus is incorrect. He didn't come to honor. He didn't throw this party to honor him. In fact, if anything, he dishonored him. Now let's look at Simon's view of sin. His view of sin is found when he says, she is a sinner. Now I want you to just catch your breath here for a moment and step back and look how this is playing out. I'm not sure too many people would immediately conclude that, that she is a sinner. That's in the present tense, by the way. That means she was a sinner, and she is a sinner today, and I am sure she's going to be a sinner tomorrow. She is a sinner. But what did Luke already tell us? And, and I think that Simon has enough information here that he's observing to conclude otherwise that she truly is not a sinner. But his Pharisaism and his view of sin is keeping him from embracing that obvious truth. And I need to unwrap. Why, why is that? Well, Luke tells us that she had lived a sinful life. That's the truth. Now, if uh, you were throwing a party and someone like this came into your party, and let's assume for the moment that you did the reclining bit rather than feet under the table. Okay, I'm stretching here a bit, but follow me. And this woman comes in and she starts you know, pouring perfume on this guy's feet. You would think there is some connection here that I don't know about, but this is really extravagant. Why would this sinful woman do this with Jesus? 
conclusion, Jesus obviously did something absolutely amazing in this woman's life. I mean, what does Jesus do, by the way? He heals people. He speaks truth into their lives. He, he, he tends to blow up our theology box and so that it, when it's put back together, it's right with Christ in the center. These are some things that Jesus did, and it was obvious Jesus had this healing miracle, I mean, this miraculous ministry. But Simon, he's afraid to go there because here's, here's what he's thinking. You know what? If this has happened in her life, I'm sorry, but she still has this reputation of a sinful woman. And if you want to have a reputation of being a righteous woman, you're going to need to earn that. You're going to need to live a righteous life. And one day, maybe we'll call you a righteous woman. But right now, you're a sinful woman. And Jesus, you should know this. And he has this misunderstanding of, of sin and somehow God's inability to forgive. That somehow she is beyond forgiveness. She has just sinned too much. And I'm almost tempted to wonder, so Simon, did you ever meet her on the street corner? There's something in me that wonders that, okay? Um, but he sees this sin that somehow yeah, there's no way that she has done enough for God to forgive her. He has a misunderstanding of forgiveness. That somehow this woman is not just beyond forgiveness, she's beyond true change. Her acts of extravagant love are viewed as superficial, over the top, some facade, much like Michael in her view, David's wife, Michael's view of David's act of devotion, dancing, undignified, unashamed before the Lord, taking off the king's garb and, and dancing and worshiping God extravagantly just like any other man. Because he realized, I am dancing before the one true king. How dare I assume the position of king right now? And he takes his kingly robe off and he dances and he worships extravagantly before God. Michael, daughter of Saul, who is dead by now, she views it and thinks, how unkingly and undignified you were. And she is just like Simon here because Simon believed this woman was beyond change. He was critical. That somehow she was beyond a good reputation that somehow perhaps she would have to earn God's love. You see, Simon misunderstood sin and Jesus' heart towards sin as a friend of sinners when our hearts change. This is the heart of Jesus. Our sin can be so deep and so heinous and wicked, but God's love and God's forgiveness can still change all of us. Now, maybe some of you can't relate to that because you are a little bit more like Simon. Simon was a 50 denarii sinner, and this woman was a 500 denarii sinner. I'm going to get into that in just a minute. But having been saved, can I ask you, are you still trying to earn God's love, his favor, and, and perhaps even his forgiveness by your actions that maybe you can gain a better standing by earning and doing all of these extravagant acts of devotion. And Jesus would say to you, my friend, you've got it all backwards. You've got it all backwards. 
So I want to ask you, do you feel you have disappointed God too much and that somehow by disappointing him, you can never live up to his forgiveness? See, that's the other side of the coin. Sometimes we just think that some people are beyond God's forgiveness. But how about you? Where are you at? Maybe today you look at your past or maybe even your present. You just feel this weight of condemnation and disappointment from God. Can I just say this? That children cannot thrive under the constant disappointment of a parent. They can't. As a pastor, I have counseled many of those children when they grow up. Neither can an employee thrive under the constant disappointment of an employer. It just doesn't happen. God's love is not one that is like a balance that we can twist it and turn it as we will by doing things that make him happy. The word of God in Zephaniah 3.17 says he rejoices over you with singing. There is nothing that you can do to earn his infinite love. There is nothing that you can do to win it, and there is nothing that you can do to turn it away. When you have stepped into this covenant relationship with Jesus, he doesn't, when you sin, he doesn't fold his arms and just say, oh, really, Mike, again, please. And just this heavy disappointment. Now, please don't misunderstand me. And this will be made clear in the next point, but God is holy. God is absolutely holy and he hates sin and invites us to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And so I need to move on to this last point. And this is where it begins to click, I think, for us. And that is Simon's view of forgiveness. In verse 47, it says, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. Now, why has her many sins been forgiven. It says in the very last verse there, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So it is her faith as she placed her faith in Jesus. Now, faith is not just the believing of facts. It is this allegiance, this surrender, this devotion to. And when we are coming to Christ, we say, I surrender all. You are my Lord and my Savior. And we now enter into this relationship with God himself. And our faith, not our works, saves us. Now, again, maybe I need to word that a little differently. It's by grace, through faith, that we are saved. But it goes on to say here, it says, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. Now, if you're not careful, you're going to think, okay, because she loved much, her sins are forgiven. Is this what you're saying, Jesus? And we can, there can be a little bit of confusion here. And let me just clarify that Jesus' point is not if you love much, then you're going to be forgiven. That's obviously not his point. We do not earn forgiveness or salvation. We can't earn God's salvation. There's a story told about a, a young man, and he's trying to win a girl's heart. And it just seems like there is no reciprocated affection at all. 
So there's some distance between them. So he says, I'm going to write her a letter every day. Writes her a letter every day. She still is not responding. So she, he decides, I'm going to up it. I'm going to, I'm going to send her a love letter three times a day. And so he does. He's sending a, three love letters every day. And then finally, after he had sent her a sum total of 700 love letters through the mail, she married the mailman. Love doesn't always accomplish what we want it to. For she loved much. Does not mean that by loving much that somehow she earned God's love. Ain't going to happen. But because she was forgiven much, she loved much. And so really we should read it. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. And this is evidenced by the fact that she loves much. And these acts of love are evidence that she has been forgiven much. And as we, as we look into this story, Jesus tells a little parable, very short parable, and kind of lays this question out for Simon. He says, Simon, I mean, if there are two people who, who owe the master money, one 500 and another 50 denarii, denarii is about a day's wages. And because neither of them could pay it, the, the master said, I'm just going to wipe out all of your debts. He then says, or, or, or he, Jesus then asks, which of them do you think would probably love the master more. And Simon, you know, he doesn't just come out and say it, well, duh, Jesus, obviously the one with the greater debt. He's, he's a little bit hesitant. He's kind of toe-dripping. I suppose the one who is forgiven more. Because he almost, feel, you get the feeling, he's almost, he realizes, I'm about to step into a trap that I really don't want to. Okay, I suppose... And he knows Jesus is about to make a point here, and he feels set up. Don't you get that? I, I suppose, and that is in the Greek, by the way. I suppose, and Jesus says, yes. I mean, you don't just suppose, Simon. You know this. But here's my question. Is it true, then, that I have to be, let me just word it this way. I have to be a 500 denarii sinner? in order to love Jesus much as opposed to a 50 denarii sinner. When I, was, when I was a young man in Christ, I envied those who had these incredible testimonies of how they were uh, drug dealers and they, we were involved in gangs and they had been shot like 50 times and survived and God healed them. And they had this incredible testimony. I'm like, man, I wish I had that kind of testimony. Of course, minus this. No, but then if I did. Anyways, I realized, wow, it would be great for me to have this kind of testimony. And because they seem so passionate for God. I mean, is this Jesus's point? Let me ask you this. Is sin an offense to a holy God? Tell me. Yes, it is. Good, good answer. If, if sin is an offense to God's holiness, what, to what degree is sin an offense to God's infinite holiness? Would it not be an infinite offense? Many of us look at this concept of hell, and because we can't understand God's infinite holiness, we look at hell and we think, oh my goodness, God would, a loving God could never send someone to hell. 
But can I suggest to you, even though I don't fully understand this, hell is the just punishment for anyone who sins against the infinite holiness of God. Because that offense is an infinite offense to God. Now, I'm sorry, I, I, can't un I can't wrap my mind around the concept of infinity. But if one sin is an infinite offense to the infinite holiness of God, and he hates sin, then what is, what's 50, 50 denarii, what's 50 times infinity? Give me an answer, it's infinity. What's 500 times infinity? It's still infinity. You see, it doesn't matter whether you're a 50 denarii sinner or a 500, you understand what I'm saying here, right? We're a 500 denarii sinner. It doesn't matter how many sins you have committed because the truth is all of our sins multiplied by infinity is still an infinite offense to God. The problem is Simon could not see his sin and he could not see its incredible infinite offense to God. He saw himself, I'm just a 50 denarii sinner. I'm, I, it's not that bad. And Jesus is inviting him. You know what, Simon? I need you to see your sin from God's perspective here. It doesn't matter whether you are this sinful woman who's forgiven or you yourself. And Simon had apparently lived according to the law. He was a pretty good guy. But can I tell you this idea of good, according to Isaiah? And, and then I'm going to try not to offend some people here. But if you take, before you've come to Christ, like this woman or Simon, and they do, Simon especially, all of these righteous acts, Isaiah 64, 6 says, even your best, even all of your righteousness, Simon, are like filthy rags. And excuse me for being so blunt here. Do you know what that Hebrew word for filthy rags means? Yes, it means menstrual cloths. That's how it's used in Isaiah. Unclean, offensive. Even our righteous acts before we come to Christ are empty and worthless in the eyes of God. They accomplish nothing in currying and winning his favor, his grace, or his forgiveness, or his salvation. The best of the best that Simon did procured nothing for his salvation. It could never overcome the infinite offense of his sin. And for this reason, Jesus went to the cross. Now, I'm not saying I see the cross in this story here. That has yet to come. But the payment for your sin cost Jesus everything. And when you see how truly depraved and wicked and empty our sin is and even our righteous acts before we come to Christ and to realize God now washes all of that away. All of the shame, those moments that when you sinned and you wept, that abortion that took place in your life and the guilt that you felt from it is washed.
washed away. The sexual immoral life which this woman may have lived under the blood of Jesus Christ. And he never counts it against us. That is forgiveness. Because forgiveness, he tells us, is the canceling of a debt. Our sin, in essence, we owe God something. And he says, when you have faith in me, I cancel that debt. You owe me Nothing. Now, don't get me wrong. Romans 12, 1, we know what that means. It says, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as living sacrifices for him. That's not contradictory. Contradictory. From my perspective, I, I, I feel like this sinful woman and, and all of my sins, infinitely offensive to God, being forgiven. I want to live for Jesus. And that is, that's Luke's point here. Yes, you want to live for Jesus now, even those who have suffered and died for the cause of the kingdom of God. They did it not because somehow they would earn a place in heaven, that somehow God would love them more. No. They did it because they loved you. You can read it. They loved Jesus. That's it. They loved he was their first love and they were passionately pursuing him. And if that meant persecution, and, and I could get into details and I don't think any of you would want me to do that, but the truth is, regardless, no matter what the cost, I am following Jesus because I am deeply and madly and extravagantly in love with what happened with this sinful woman. She, she could not avoid it. She was so aware of the sinfulness of her sin and Simon was not. And I would suggest to you that if you want to fall in love with Jesus more, you need to be able to set aside these wrong mindsets of who Jesus is. He is the friend of sinners that somehow we misgrasp his forgiveness. Jesus forgives everything. That my sin, though it's a, an eternal and infinite offense, it is now washed away, forgiven. Jesus, by the cross, you see, church, it cost him everything. Everything. His life. What is the life of God worth? What is it worth? Can you put a price tag on that? Can you somehow weigh it in a balance and say this is how much it's worth? It blows my mind. But Jesus, as God come in the flesh, laid his life down. And he did that to pay for our sin. And I mentioned some time ago, I can't remember if it was two weeks ago, it was it was in my notes to share with you. If I didn't, I just can't remember. But Meredith and my first Christmas, and she put all of those hours, probably hundreds of hours, into making me a quilt. And I, I can't say that I'm a quilt kind of guy, but when I looked at that quilt, it was beautiful. But what overwhelmed me to the point of tears, I think I did a pretty good job hiding from my wife, but I was just amazed at what it cost her, so much time. So that anniversary, I decided I'm going to try and reciprocate 
If you've ever been in my house and you go to the second floor and you turn right, actually a U-turn, and you go to the end of the hallway, we have two bookcases. And I need to explain, it's the one on the left, not the one on the right, okay? Saunders made that one, okay, not me. But this one on the left, a friend of mine had me come, allowed me to use his garage, his workshop. He had plenty of tools as a <clears throat> man married only one year. I mean, how many tools can you accumulate? And so I borrowed all of his tools, and plus I lived in Phoenix, Arizona at the time. And I put hours and hours and hours into this bookshelf. And then at the very top, at the header, I put Mary, M-E-R-E-Y, which is short for Mary. And I stained it and varnished it and varnished it again and varnished it again. And on our anniversary, our first year anniversary, I gave it, maybe it was a second year anniversary, I gave it to her. And I know for, as a guy, I understand the time. And Meredith, she understood the time that it took in you know, putting into that quilt. This sinful woman, she understood what she was really sacrificing here. Uh, potential for supreme embarrassment as she enters boldly into this Pharisee's house and falls down and I can only imagine uncontrollably, because I would want to control my tears. She couldn't, and she profusely wept upon his feet. Why? Because Jesus had forgiven her sins. I'm sure perhaps healed her, and she was so overwhelmed. Her sin and all of that. She was more than a 500 denarii sinner. She was an infinite sinner, and she knew it. And it was all washed away. Completely forgiven. And we see this extravagant display of love. And I hope there's something inside of you that says, that's how I want to live my life for Jesus. No holds barred. I'm not going to, no punches pulled. I, everything, full tilt, 110%. Why? In view of God's mercies, present your bodies as living sacrifices. So can I ask you, why do you serve Jesus? What motivates you? Remember, everything in the Christian life flows from this one truth. I stand before God as a condemned, guilty, convicted sinner, completely unworthy of his forgiveness, of his favor, his grace, his love, and I chose to say, Jesus, I want to follow you if you'll have me. I choose to believe in you, to surrender to you, and to say to this past life that I'm addicted to, I need your help, but I want to leave this behind. Would you help me? Because I, I, I can't do it. I want to follow you. And at that moment of faith and repentance, Jesus takes all of that, all of that offensiveness, and washes it away. If I were to go barefoot in my backyard, and sometimes little doggies leave surprises in our yards, sorry. Actually, they need to be saying sorry, but, you know. And, and if I were to be stepping in this, say, one time, and I were to walk in and say, Meredith, would you please wash my feet? 
What do you think she would say? She would probably say nothing and just point to the door. <laughs> you hose it off. You see, it doesn't matter if I step in one or ten, okay? I, if I were to ask my she would want to say no. Now, when we come to Jesus, and like in John 13, he wraps a servant's towel around his waist, and he washes his disciples' feet. We have all stepped in that. Jesus has willingly washed it all away. And I'm asking you, number one, has Jesus done that for you? And number two, if he has, have you forgotten? Because the Christian life is all about this. Can you stand with me? <clears throat> Realize I'm a little past 12 right now. Please consider these words. I fear that for some of you, if the fire has not gone out, it's about to. And that perhaps for some of you, you have never even been ignited by the love of Jesus. And I invite you to be ignited. I invite you to step into this relationship with Jesus. And I'm going to promise you this. If you give him everything, he will change everything. And you will fall madly in love with him. And for a guy, that's kind of hard to say. I'm falling in love with Jesus. But it's true. We're the bride of Christ. So, Father, I, I am asking you right now that you would speak to our hearts. And, God, if we have never stepped into this relationship with you and surrendered to you, God, right now, would you prompt us, would you convict us, and by your Spirit lead us to that point and that moment of salvation in which we say, Jesus, help me, because I cannot, but I want to follow you. I surrender to you. I give my allegiance to you as king. Come change me. Would you do that right now, God? Would you change us by the power of your spirit, God? We need you. And if our passion is dwindling, if we feel we're in remote control and we've been following you maybe for some time, but that love is growing cold. Give us a bigger view of your awesome, powerful, all-encompassing forgiveness. Sins are forgiven. The guilt is washed away. And the shame is gone. In Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you rescued me, I was completely unworthy. I love you, God, with all my heart. This morning, refresh us with this truth. Call us, God, to you. That we would follow you passionately, and if one day it even means suffering, being persecuted, and even dying, I say to you today, send me. I want to go. I love you, Lord. 
Jesus' name, amen.